Thanks for tuning in to the Harvest Springs weekly podcast. Every week we'll provide you with the weekend message from our Sunday service. How are we? We good? good. Well, glad you're here. And, uh, and it's just a privilege to be able to join together with you. Over the summer I was gone, and, uh, and so I've come to kind of really appreciate being able to, to do what we do together. Last week, we, uh, we started a message series called The Core, and uh, what we're doing in this series is really as a church, kind of connecting to our core values, like what makes Harvest Springs a unique place in our community, and why, uh, why do we exist, what has God called us to do, and how do we then as a church just do that together? Uh, inside of that, we took a look last week at our founding passage, the the passage of scripture that 20 years ago God laid on my heart that ultimately led us to start this church. It is um, Psalm 107 verses 35, 36, 37. You, have, you should have a, a set of notes when you came in. If you didn't uh, grab some of these, they're available right outside the door. You can grab them on a table, uh, grab them on the table. It's right outside the door. You, you'll want these today. If you're watching online with us on Facebook, uh, they should be posting a link to the the notes page and you can click right there. It'll take you right to them. Uh, If you're on a church online platform, there's a little notes tab. And uh, Paul, our executive pastor, told me today that you can actually take your own notes inside of the notes that we have posted there for you. And he even tried it. He went and changed some of my notes. So if you don't like what I'm saying, you could change it to what you like and, and make your own notes, whatever. So anyway, that's available for you, and we encourage you to use it. Okay, so our founding passage is found in Psalm 107. And uh, in verses 35, 36, and 37, this week I went and I looked it up in the message paraphrase. Uh, Some of you guys know uh, Eugene Peterson, who was a pastor, kind of writer, author, theologian. And uh, he did kind of a, a paraphrase of the scripture from his vantage point. And it's just an interesting view into this passage. And so I put it there in the notes for you. Uh, then God, right, changed the wasteland into fresh pools of water and arid earth into springs of water. And what, what did he do? He brought in the hungry and settled them there. And I like that phrase. He settled them there. They moved in. We talked about this descriptor last week about how when, they're, when you're in the desert, right? And you find a place of oasis, a place of water where water is abundant, right? You relocate to the water, right? The closer you are to the water, the easier life is going to be. And so uh, you don't just stay 10 miles away from the water. You relocate, you reorient your life around the water. And that's what this description is, is in this desert, in this wilderness, right? There's an oasis that forms, there's abundant water, and what? It draws the hungry there, and they what? They settle. They put down roots. They move in. And I like what it says there. What a great place to live. And once they're there, right, they establish this community. And it says in verse 37 that they sow fields, they planted vineyards, they reaped a bountiful harvest. And that ultimately is where we get the name, Harvest Springs. We believe God wants to do something 
pour out his spirit and make an oasis of his presence in our midst. It's going to draw the hungry there. We'll establish a, a, an inhabited city, a community of believers uh, connected to the living water of Jesus. And then we'll sow fields, plant vineyards, and reap a fruitful harvest. Out of that passage, we talked about how there were five core values. We're going to talk about those five core values over the next five weeks. Today, we're going to talk about what it means to be rooted. Okay, rooted. Uh, next week, we'll talk about being relational. Uh, then the third one is we can't be relational without being authentic or real. Uh, we're going to talk about being relevant and then results or just fruitful. Okay, so those are those five core values that we're going to unpack over the next uh, several weeks. But today we're talking about rooted. And a passage of scripture that just comes to mind right away in regards to being rooted to the water is a passage in Psalm chapter one or Psalm one in verses one through three. I have this in your notes. Some of you at the top of this Psalm might have a little title. Some of yours might say a contrast of the righteous and the wicked. But really this passage is a contrast between the actions and the attitudes of those who are rooted to Christ, rooted to God, and those who've chosen to root themselves to the world. The contrast of the righteous and the wicked. Here's what it says in the first three verses. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And here's what he's like. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither in all that he does. He prospers. I want us to today to think, okay, am I righteous or am I wicked? Now we're not very good at this in terms of giving ourselves an assessment. For the most part, we kind of will probably just shoot ourselves right down the middle. But it's like, you know what? I'm not righteous, but I'm not wicked either. I'm kind of, you know, somewhere in the middle. How many of you guys would kind of give yourself that assessment? I'm kind of in the middle. Then I assume the rest of you are wicked, <laughs> right? Now, the, the reality is we probably are going to have a hard time raising our hand. If I say, okay, raise your hand if you think you're righteous, yeah, oh, you know, anybody who does raise their hand, everybody's like, whoa, look at the Lord of that guy, right? <laughs> that guy's nowhere near righteous. I've seen him, you know. Uh, so, so if someone does raise their hand to that question, it feels almost like you're uh, kind of arrogant, proud, uh, you know, self-righteous in that sense. If we ask ourselves the question on the other side, are you wicked, I'm guessing you're going to have a hard time raising your hand on that one too, right? Because we kind of know a lot of people that are doing a lot worse stuff than we are. They're a lot, you know, yeah, I'm not like my neighbor. He's really wicked. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I, I've done some bad things, right? So in a lot of ways, we kind of grade ourselves on a curve. We maybe are not as, as righteous as Mother Teresa. We're not as wicked as Hitler. We're kind of right in the middle somewhere, well, what I'd like us to do, instead of trying to grade ourselves on a curve, to measure ourselves by the scripture. Because in Psalm 1, we get a descriptor 
of what a wicked person does, how they live their life, and its contrast to the person who chooses to be righteous. And when I talk about the word righteousness or to be righteous, I would just simply give it this definition. You are righteous when you are in a right relationship with the king. Okay? Doesn't mean you're perfect. It means you're in a right relationship with the king. Okay? How many of you guys understand this in marriage? You're, you may not be the perfect spouse, right? You might make mistakes every once in a while. So like as a husband, I, I fail as a husband as much as anybody. But I would say I'm righteous with my wife. I'm in a right relationship with Tasha. I'm, good, I'm glad she's not in here today. <laughs> she, might, she might differ on that one, but I, I'm pretty sure we're good, <laughs> right? To the best of my ability, I, I am, I've tried to do my best to honor her, to love her, uh, to be faithful, right? I, it's, so I am righteous with her. It doesn't mean I'm perfect. It means that my heart is right towards her, and, and I believe her heart is right towards me. We're in a right relationship, okay? The righteousness. Many times we get this idea about holiness that is connected to our performance, how well we're performing. And, and trust me, like I, I use this illustration just a couple, I was speaking at a college here just a, a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about, is it possible to be perfect? And I said, well, imagine if your, your five-year-old daughter wakes up at five in the morning and she's, she wants to make you breakfast in bed. She wants to honor you. And so she's cooking and she's trying to make scrambled eggs and, and make some toast. And she puts it all together on a little tray and she carries it into you, right? How many of you guys know it's not going to be perfect? She's five, right? The eggs might be a little burnt. The toast might not have enough butter on it. Uh, you know, the, might've spilled some orange juice on the way in. But you as a parent are going to look at that and not see her performance. You're going to see her all together now. There we go. See, I'm just trying to get you to participate a little. So you're going to see her, you're going to see her heart and her desire to honor you. It's not, her performance is not going to be great. But her heart is right. That's what it means to be righteous. Her heart is right. Doesn't necessarily mean we're not messing up every once in a while and we're kind of, you know, going through the times of our best efforts aren't just going to be perfect all the time. So when we talk about being a righteous person, it means we're in a right relationship with the king. Okay? So what does it say about the wicked? Obviously, the wicked are not in a right relationship with the king. Why? Here's what it says. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So in contrast, the righteous is choosing to not be in the counsel of the wicked, not find themselves in community with those who are in rebellion to the king, okay? But the wicked, they choose to pursue that. The wicked choose, chooses to pursue community with those who practice wickedness. They find friends who are not pursuing God, but pursuing the world. They want that. They feel comfortable there. They don't like hanging out with those who'd maybe say, you know what, maybe we should try something different. Maybe we should cho choose something new, right? Maybe we should honor the king instead, right? So the wicked, they want to find their community. Now, I'm not saying 
and I, and I want to be very clear here, in no way in this message am I saying that if we follow Jesus, then we have no relationships with others who don't follow Jesus. In fact, God calls us to love and reach out to those who are disconnected from the living water, right? That's the call of God for every believer. We are to reach out there, but we cannot find our community there. We cannot find our community there because we have not oriented ourselves with the world because as a follower of Jesus, if you're righteous, you orient yourself around Christ, the living water of Jesus. So the wicked pursues community with those who practice wickedness. They have their support groups and their, you know, friend structures, and this is my people, right? The second thing it says is that they stand in the way of sinners. Simply put, the wicked engages in places and things that wickedness happens with and through. I don't know about you, but when I was in college, I didn't want to honor the Lord. I didn't want to go to church and hang out. I would rather go to the party, right? That was, there wasn't a lot of godly stuff happening at the parties. I went and stood in the place of wickedness. I went and hung out in those arenas. It's not just that. I want you to really think about this. I want you to challenge yourself. What kind of things are you allowing into your life, right? When you, when you uh, watch a movie, right? When you watch a television show, all of those things are places where either God-honoring things can happen or wickedness could happen. Are you choosing to stand in the place of wickedness? Could you invite Jesus to come in and, and uh, have movie night with you? Right? Are, are, we, are we orienting ourselves around the world and its culture, or have we chosen to orient ourselves around the king and his ways? The wicked chooses to orient around the culture. The wicked goes and stands in those places, willfully chooses you know, to be in that arena. They don't remove themselves. And then it goes on in verse, this is all in Psalm 1, verse 1. They sit, they sit in the seat of scoffers. Basically, it just simply means that the wicked partners together with those who scoff and mark, mock those who choose to do right. When I was in high school, there was a group of kids that had kind of committed themselves to not get into the realm of alcohol and get caught up in that. And do you know how many times... Those who would be big into the party scene would mock those who are choosing not to. There are many people who just choose to kind of, in their, in their selfish way, mock those who make right choices. That's what the wicked do. They ultimately are choosing to not surrender to the authority of the king. In Matthew uh, 22, this, this, just yesterday, I opened my Bible. I was spending some time in the, in the morning with the Lord, and I read Matthew 22. 
I'd encourage you to open there if you have your Bibles. I don't have it in your notes, but we're going to read a parable Jesus told. And I saw some things as I was reading yesterday that I'd never seen before. And it was just fascinating to me how it applies to kind of where we're at today. It says in verse 1 of Matthew 22, and again, Jesus spoke to them saying in parables, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. All right, so the king here is inviting people to his son's wedding feast. He wants to celebrate together. And so he, he basically invites all of the people that should really want to be there. And they all say, you know what? No, not interested. They don't come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. So the invitation goes out again. But listen, pay attention to how they respond. They paid no attention and they went off. They paid no attention and they went off. One to his farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed some of them. Let's stop and think about this for a moment. The king invites people to his son's wedding feast and they don't respond. So he sends his messengers again. And it says they paid no attention. How many of you guys know that to attend a wedding feast, you're going to have to let some stuff go? Right? When you get invited to a wedding, usually that's not on your calendar. You're not thinking that's what I need to do with my weekend, right? You're going to have to reorient some time. Now, we've probably all been invited to weddings. Okay, I'm going to be careful here. We've all probably been invited to weddings with people that we just don't have that much of a relationship with right? We're just not that close with. We don't, or maybe we just don't really like them all that much or, or whatever the, the case may be. And in a lot of ways, the invitation comes and sometimes then if we're not close or we're not committed to that relationship, what, is, what happens to that invitation? Kind of gets maybe set to the side it's not really worth rearranging my schedule or making the travel arrangements or spending the money, right? It's not worth all of that stuff to go reorient around that invitation. You understand what's happening here with these people? The king, now notice this isn't just some random guy, this is the king and the prince of the kingdom. It's his wedding. The king invites these people specifically but the invitation comes, they're like, yeah, I was going to go golfing this Saturday. You know, there's some college football games I want to watch. You know, there's, there's things at home. I've got some honey-do lists. You know, we really need to clean the, the, that back bathroom. There's, there's things we have to do. I don't want to reorient my life to be a part of that thing. Are we, are we following what's happening here? 
So Summit says they just paid no attention. Oh, whatever, King. I can't stand when he sends me invitations to stuff, right? And it just goes in the, in the garbage. But some, right, well, I've got to go back to my farm. This is where I work. This, or, this is where I live. My farm is probably my, in that day, it was probably their home. This is where family stuff, you know, I'm connecting with my family. We've got family obligations. We've got food to raise, right? We've got, you know, stuff to get prepared for in my family. It says some went off to their work. This is the career, our profession, our livelihood. I need, you know, I've got a promotion. I've got this task I've got to do, right? All of these things are ultimately what are driving these people to say no to the invitation of the king. They don't want to reorient their lives around his invitation. Then it says that there were some that mocked and attacked the messengers, I'm not distracted, or I'm not too busy. I'm not consumed with other things. I just hate you, king, and I hate your messengers. And I'm not even going to give you an excuse. I'm going to assault those who invite me, right? I'm just going to be violent and vile towards you because I don't have a good reason not to respond. But this bitterness in my heart towards the king is now coming out in how I'm responding, right? So that's what we see. So what does the king do? Well, the king in verse seven, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed the murderers and burned their cities. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out onto the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. So they just went out and they started inviting everybody, just random strangers, you know, just king, you know, people in the kingdom, but just come, the king is inviting you. And so people just start filling the, the wedding hall to celebrate together with the king. When the king, this is in verse 11 now, when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Think about this for a moment. Big wedding going on, right? And uh, let's just imagine, how many of you guys have ever seen painters? You know what a painter is when he's in his work clothes. Because the painter, I mean, they just, you know, paint clothes, or paint everywhere. It's all over, you know. It's, you just know, oh, that guy's a painter, okay? Let's just imagine this guy gets the, you know, the invitation. Hey, come to the wedding feast, So the painter guy, instead of changing out of his paint clothes and getting into at least some kind of appropriate dress for the prince of the kingdom's wedding feast, he just shows up in his work clothes. And when the king's going through, he comes up and goes, "Uh, hold on, bro, how'd you get in here dressed like that? You You couldn't even change into something a little bit more appropriate? Notice here what the guy's response was. He was speechless. Throughout the Bible, we know that as those who choose to orient ourselves around Christ and his kingdom, that we are called to throw off the old ways of the world, right? To take off the old garments of the flesh and sinfulness and the activities of that stuff and put on, right, the the righteous clothes. Put on the newness, right? 
Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Right? You take off the old and put on new. It's no longer my bitter and angry and upset and vile, but rather I put on love and selflessness and kindness towards one another and grace, right? I put on those clothes because that's the way of the king. So this guy shows up at the invitation in the wedding feast itself, but has refused to take off the old clothes. Listen to what the king does. The king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him in the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Basically, this guy gets cast outside and now all he can do is regret and lament that he squandered and wasted the opportunity that he had. He had been invited by the king to be a part of this wedding feast Everything had been provided, this extravagant, enjoyable, unbelievable, unthinkable event. He was invited to. And because of his willi- unwillingness to let go of the old, be inconvenienced for just a moment. I don't know, maybe this guy lived a long ways away and he's like, oh, I don't want to walk all the way home, change my clothes and then walk all the way back. I'm just going to go for the food. I don't know what his problem was, but ultimately his unwillingness to prepare his heart cost him. And because he wouldn't let go of the old ways and he hung on to the old clothes, he ultimately found himself cast outside and he missed out on the blessing of being together with the king. Guys, I'm telling you, At some point, we will all stand before the king. We will, and to be honest with you, you'll be dressed with the choices that you've made. And we will be like this guy here. When the the king confronts us about our dress, we will have no excuse. There will be nothing we can say, right? No amount of excuse is going to sound right in that moment because the king's going to know the truth and so will we. We'll have no justification. He's the righteous judge. He knows. And he is calling us and inviting us to reorient our lives, not around the ways of the world, but around the ways of the king. And that's what the righteous do. The very first thing there in your notes, what do we see? The righteous reorient their lives around the king and his ways. They realize if Christ is the living water, what do I do? I leave the desert and I go reorient my life. I go put down stakes. I settle by the well. I build a house there, right? I, you know, get a yard. I, I, I do whatever it takes to reorient my life around the connection to that relationship. The righteous make the relationship with Christ our king, the most important relationship in their life. Not only that, they refuse, because they're reorienting their lives around the king and his ways, they remove themselves from places and things that are of the world. 
Look, I'm not going to watch that television show. It might be the most popular show uh, in history, but I'm not going to watch it because it's of the world, right? Entertainment might be great, right? It might be very entertaining, but it's not honoring to the king in which I pledge my allegiance to. I remove myself from those places. I remove those selves, myself from those things. I won't allow myself to get caught up in places where I can stumble and fall. When I was, when I was in college, I, I was an alcoholic, and I was caught up in a, a scene of alcoholism and parties and those kind of things. And when I came to faith in Christ, one of the first things I recognized that I had to do to honor Christ in my life was I couldn't go to those parties. I couldn't. At that time, I knew that if I went and stood in the ways of those, those places, that I would get caught back up in the ways of the world. It was hard. I had lots of friends that were calling me and inviting me, wanting me to go. Sometimes I'd find myself on a Friday night, you know, sitting in my room by myself. But I had to choose a different path for the sake of the king in my life. The third thing there, the righteous refuse to hang out with those who scoff and mock the king and his people. The righteous choose to embrace the truth rather than to mock or scoff after those who will proclaim it. I find this sometimes even at work in the church. When someone in the church calls people to deep holiness and righteousness... Sometimes even as Christians, we go, oh, that person, they're just, they're kind of a religious freak. They're a Jesus freak, man. They're a little too over the top with some of this stuff. And they're like, wait, you know, man, they, they only watch G movies. Can you believe that? You know, they begin to scoff at, we begin to scoff at each other. That's not how the righteous function. The righteous call each other to holiness. They encourage each other to holiness, and to right relationship with God. Number four on that list, the righteous delight themselves in God's word. Notice what it says there in Psalm 1, 2. But the righteous delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. How many of you guys like cereal? Anybody? Who's my cereal people in here? Come on. I, oh, Cocoa Puffs. I'm with you on that one. I, I love cereal. It is probably one of my favorite things. Now, I stopped eating cereal for a long time. But not this weekend. This weekend, I, uh, I went to Bozeman uh, on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, my son qualified for the state golf tournament and went down there, and so I wanted to go watch him. And he did great, by the way. He did great. Um, but, you know, it was kind of costly. So my idea when I was driving down there is, you know what? The first night I'm going to go down there. I'm going to get my hotel room. I'm going to drive to Walmart. I'm going to go buy cereal and a gallon of milk. And I'm going to save money because I'm going to eat cereal for dinner, and breakfast, and lunch. And I'm going to eat cereal the whole time. Now, you'd think I'd get tired of it, but I don't. So I got a whole, you know, those big bags, you know, that like 17 people could eat. Uh, I got one of those big bags of frosted mini wheats. 
and a gallon of milk. And I had cereal for dinner. I didn't even go down to the hotel because I had cereal already, right? I had cereal again for breakfast. I cut a lunch out on the course and then I got back after the course day and I had cereal again. And then uh, I had cereal for breakfast the next morning and cereal before we left for the course, that, you know, that final day. I mean, I, I'm telling you, I delighted in every single bite. I loved it. It was good. Every time I'm like, oh, I just want to eat another. And so, you know, four bowls a morning. Is that normal? I'm not sure. It was small bowls. But I, I mean, every bite, and I'm just like, I'd get done eating a bowl, and then I'd be like, oh, I could do one more bowl. It's just so good. I'm just enjoying it so much. It's that kind of delight that, guys, as righteous as those who have aligned ourselves with the king, it's that kind of delight that we have to have about God's word, right? Think about the best dessert you've ever had. And every bite, you're like, you know, when Tasha and I go to the Olive Garden, we love the tiramisu, we love it. And if you've never had it, you don't understand. But if you've had it, you do. <laughs> the Olive Garden tiramisu is the best tiramisu I've ever had anywhere on the planet. And Tasha and I will always share because we just feel so guilty ordering one for each of us. So we share, and you know what we do? We draw a line with our fork down the middle <laughs> so that we make sure that you're not eating more than me. Because why? We delight in every single bite, every single one. We enjoy it. You take that bite and you're like, oh, yeah, that's great. Right? You take another bite and you're just you're sad when it's gone, right? There's like this mourning period you go through. Like it's all gone. It's all, you know, and then you lick the plate. I'm not just, just, no, you don't. But here's the thing. Do you have that same kind of delight in God's word? That's, that's the word here. We delight in it. You wake up in the morning. Are you eager to open God's word and begin to hear God's voice speak to you? The Bible is so accessible. For most of history, people have not had the Bible available to them. Right? You'd have to go find a, someone with a scroll or a place that would have the, uh, you know, a portion of the scripture that you could actually listen to or potentially read. But now, guys, we have the Bible. You can get it on your phone in about 500 different translations. Almost everybody, I mean, we have these outside. If you don't have a Bible, go out there and grab one. Just take it. We, we want you to have a Bible. The Bible is so accessible to us. And yet for some reason, most of us in the church has, have so little delight in God's word. If you're not constantly putting yourself in God's word, then I'm telling you, you won't ever fully understand what it's like and the sweetness of having God speak to you from his truth. When God, when I'm telling you, when I was in that, my Jeep alongside the river and God spoke that passage, Psalm 107, 35, 36, and 37, when he, when he revealed that as I was reading it, and he said, this is for great falls. I'm telling you, there was something that happened in my soul, this richness, this sweetness that caused me to want more and more and more of it. You'll never have those experiences if you're not regularly and consistently going to God's word and allowing it into your life. I know some of us, you look at it and go, well, I'm not much of a reader. I don't really like to read. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a great reader. Uh, I, I understand that it might not be comfortable. 
I don't like paying the eight bucks for tiramisu at Olive Garden either. But I'm willing to pay that price for the delight I get to have as I eat it. Sometimes we've got to pay the price to see God's word become a delight to us. And the last thing it says there in Psalm 1-3, it says that on the law of God, the truth of the word of God, the righteous meditate on day and night. That word meditate means to think on and to bring to mind over and over. I was talking with a guy once about what it means to meditate, and he says, you got to meditate like a cow. I said, what? He said, cows have four stomachs. Have you ever wonder how a cow gets so big eating salad for dinner, breakfast, and lunch? You know, they just, they're eating grass the whole time. How do they get so big? They get so big because they extract every ounce of nutrition out of that grass that they eat. So they eat some grass, they swallow it into a stomach. While they're standing there, some grass that they ate previously, this is gross, okay? And I know it's right before lunch, but we can do it. They vomit it back up into their mouth and they chew on it again. Why are they doing this? Because they've digested it a little bit. It's broken down. They, they, they meditate on it. It's called chewing their cud, right? You see a cow out there chewing. They're chewing on food they've previously eaten. And they bring it back. They chew on it. They break it down some more, right? And then they swallow. And then they're able to extract even more nutrients from what they've eaten. As followers of Christ, that's got to be our, our pathway. We, we wake up in the morning. We take in some of the word. We read it. We mark some stuff. We think about it then. Then we go about our day. Maybe it's coffee break. We stop and we go, you know what? That passage, just I call it to mind. Maybe at lunch, we stop and we open up our word again. We look over the things that we marked and we just think on them. And what was God trying to say to my heart in that regard? Maybe as you're getting ready for bed, you turn on a, a scripture, you know, Bible on CD or something like that, and you just let it play so you can hear it. I don't know what it means to you, but the righteous, it says, they meditate on God's law day and night. They're bringing it, constantly thinking about it and aligning themselves with it. Why? They've reoriented their lives around the king and his ways. The difference between the righteous and the wicked is all about where they've chosen to root themselves. It's all about where they've chosen to root themselves. The righteous have chosen to attach themselves to the king and his ways. They've reoriented their life. They've moved. They've settled in. They put down roots. The wicked have chosen to live in the world. They've put down, they've put down roots in the world. And therefore, they will never experience what Psalm 1-3 says, which is the fruit the fruit of those who have rooted themselves in Christ, in Christ alone. Listen to what it says. That righteous person is like a tree planted by streams of water. I planted a tree when we first bought our house um, about four years ago. I planted a tree. It was this, like a clearance tree. So they were just getting rid of it. And I'm like, ah, I'll just plant it somewhere. So I, I grabbed it, planted it in this area, 
uh, it's not irrigated, didn't get any water, and I was kind of surprised it didn't live for some reason. I didn't give it any water. But guess what? If you're a tree planted by the stream, you don't have anything to worry about. Right? You always have the water. Drought, you don't have to worry about the drought. You don't have to worry about that. Why? Because you have the connection to the water. And what does it say? Yields its fruit. It's fruitful. Its leaf does not wither. Right? Drought can come. You don't have anything to worry about. You'll, you'll make it. You'll be sustained because you're connected to the source. And all that he does, he prospers. Doesn't mean everything's always good but you know you're going to make it if you're connected to the living water. I'm going to have the band come out, and I'm just going to say this last part. Guys, we've talked about this. As individuals, we must be rooted to the king and his ways. We've got to reorient our lives around him. But as a church, we also have to do that. Not just as people, as individuals, but also as a body. We are, as a church, we are rooted in three things. We are rooted in Christ. He is our king. He is our savior. He's the only source of life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. And he is the supplier of all that we need. Jesus said that if we drink of his living water, we'll never have to thirst again. We root ourselves in Christ, and we reorient our lives around him. We root ourselves, number two, we root ourselves in his word. His words are the word of life. His word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It guides and directs us. It is the truth. It's the essence of who he is. And it's the pathway for us to understand the king and his ways. We root ourselves in the word of God. And lastly, we root ourselves in community. We root ourselves in community. Another way to say that is we root ourselves in the king's kingdom. We know we can't survive on our own. When we reorient our lives around the king, well, guess what we're going to find? We're going to find other people who have reoriented their lives there too. We were created to live in this community with one another. We were created to love and to serve one another in we can't love and serve one another as Herman's off on our own. We need each other to fulfill the law of Christ, carry each other's burdens, to love, serve, and give grace to one another. We need each other. And so with all that said, as a church, we'll be rooted to Christ and his word and to each other. It's what God calls us to do. Before we close, I want to just take a moment because as we've talked about this, the chances are we've probably seen in a few places, maybe areas where maybe the ways of the world has cut our heart. Maybe there's a little bit more wicked in us than we'd like to admit. Maybe there needs to be a little bit more reorientation of our lives around the person of Jesus Christ. So there we had bowed and I closed. I just want to invite you to individually do business with the Lord. Whatever you need. I can't tell you what that is, but you know 
the Lord's been speaking to your heart over the course of this. There are things you need to repent of, things you just need to say no to, things you need to say I'm sorry for, things you need to commit to, whatever that is. I'm just going to give you a little space. I'm going to encourage you to do that before the Lord right here and right now. So Lord, together, we reorient our lives around you and your kingdom. We're pretty selfish people. We live for ourselves most of the time. But Lord, we recognize that's not the pathway of the king. So Lord, help us to deny ourselves. Help us to see the love and the grace that you display towards us and to willfully choose to surrender our lives to you. God, will you forgive us for those things that we've allowed into our life that have just been contrary to your ways. May our hearts well up with love and gratitude for you. God, would you give us the delight for your word? Would you help us to understand what it means to meditate on it day and night? And God, may we be a people and a church that is rooted in you and your word and in your community that you have drawn together here. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to the Harvest Springs podcast. Our hope is that you hear the truth of God's word and that you are encouraged and challenged by it. If you would like to take your faith journey to the next level, check out the Getting Started plan on our mobile app or our website, harvestsprings.com. The Getting Started plan is a seven-day video-based teaching that will help you start your relationship with Jesus off in the right direction. And if there's anything that we can do to help, just fill out a connection card on our website or on the mobile app.